Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Can you dig it? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, go to the dispatch.com to discover the third kind of heat. Um, Today's episode is brought to you by ExpressVPN. We'll talk more about them in a little bit. Okay, so when we did the Kevin Williamson podcast earlier this week, uh, which was fun, and I, I particularly liked the feedback from some people on Twitter who were trying to describe Kevin as, as just another member of the uh, elite uh, Washington Beltway class, which is like literally the um, parallel universe where Spock has a beard version of Kevin Williamson. Um, we, uh, I said at the end that we had some exciting guests, so exciting that maybe even they were like more exciting than even Kevin Williamson. And a few people in the comments said, how could you possibly say something like that? You're really setting the bar incredibly high for yourself. Well, at the time I had booked as a guest on this, uh, podcast, none other than fan favorite Tom soul and, uh, who celebrated his birthday this week. He turned 90. And, um, and then for perfectly understandable personal reasons, he had to cancel at the last minute. And I felt morally and contractually advised, you know, uh, obliged with, uh, you know, our listeners to live up to this high bar that I had set. And so thanks in part with the, to the help of, uh, my friend, Scott Emmergut, we managed to corral um, a haggard and distracted Neil Ferguson, uh, one of the most famous historians in the world and a past guest on this podcast um, and one of my favorite historians. And uh, he came in, I have to say, third in the the remnant uh, best accent competition. Uh, uh, Daniel Hannon won that and Charlie Cook in part because, you know, he's got uh, a built-in lead among some of our listeners, came in second. But uh, uh, Neil came in a very respectable third ahead of the original audio of Sean Connery. And maybe we'll we'll throw that whole contest at the very end onto this thing. So uh, I want to, I'm recording this after Neil left. And I just, because we, we didn't have a lot of time, um, although he went a while with us. Um, I'm recording this after he left. And um, uh, so he will not have heard this effusive introduction. And I, I warned him that I was going to say terrible things that people make fun of him on Twitter about um, that he'll not understand because he wouldn't have heard me introduce him. So if you want to talk about his sixth toe on Twitter, 
um, be my guest, and let's just see if he, he get, takes offense to it. Um, but with that, let's get this thing started. Neil, thank you so much for coming on, particularly at short notice. There are remarkably few uh, figures in the world of, of high-end eggheadery that can substitute at all for Thomas Sowell, never, never mind at the last minute. Um, and we've wanted to get you back on for years. You were one of our most popular guests, even though you, um, you did not win the best accent competition, that which might have been fixed. <laughs> um, but you did beat Sean Connery, so there's that. Uh, I won a moral victory. Like, like all defeats in Scottish history, it was, in fact, a moral victory. <laughs> so um, uh, let's... I, I, I want to just sort of start with a um, a strange question, which you're kind of the perfect person to answer. Uh, I saw today that Angela Merkel said that um, Europe faces the toughest situation in its history right now, which strikes me as a hyperbolic, sort of big if true. Um, but uh, uh, what you know, where do you see? Um, the European project at this point, and, uh, and it's particularly sort of in relation to how America's, its relationship with Europe, is it going to mend if Trump leaves office? Is it on a, on a downward spiral? Um, what do you think? Well, first, Jenna, I should say what a pleasure it is to be back with you. Um, secondly, it's a sign of how much I love you that I was willing to do it at short notice, because if you do anything at short notice, you're essentially admitting that you're a loser with uh, <laughs> large, unfilled spaces in the calendar. Um, although, actually, uh, I'm, I'm taking time out from book writing to do this. Uh, but, but in And given case, the time constraints that your assistant said that you had, I... They I, are I, real. I, I was, they are real. They are real. So I, I wanted to just sort of jump right in. My publisher hears this. I'm going to go and be in trouble. Um, <laughs> but Tom Sowell is a hard act to stand in for. I hope he's fine. Um yeah, you know, your your question, I think, assumes that European politicians use the word history in the way that we do, referring to the entire human past that has mm -hmm. been recorded in any way. Whereas if you're a German politician, what you mean uh, when you say the word history uh, is generally uh, the relatively recent past, ideally since 1945, not including that year. And mm -hmm. it might even be, in the case of Angela Merkel, uh, the, the past since 1989, uh, when the Berlin Wall came down. So I think it's almost got to the point that a German politician wouldn't include all the catastrophes in German history in the word history. Uh, what we're really talking about is the worst crisis since the last one. And uh, the last one was a, a pretty big crisis, and it wasn't that long ago. It was the great migration crisis of 2015, uh, 2016, right. uh, when uh, actually who knows how many people, probably in the neighborhood of 2 million people, uh, saying that they were refugees, came uh, into uh, Europe. Uh, that was kind of her fault. So it's perhaps... Not surprising she's blotted that out uh, from memory. <laughs> Before that, there was the protracted agony of the Eurozone banking crisis, which was like a sequel to the American banking crisis and lasted longer and was much more boring. 
that was also pretty disastrous because it plunged several European economies into depression-like uh, contractions, especially Greece. But I think it's true that this is a comparably serious crisis for the European Union uh, because the the pandemic has exposed, even if it was only briefly, a sad reality uh, captured best in a French expression, sauve qui peut. Uh, in the initial phase of the pandemic, when it flared up first in Italy, the immediate reactions of the various EU member states included uh, restoring national borders that had supposedly been swept away and right. cutting off the export of emergency medical supplies uh, to Italy. It took several weeks, actually, for the funk to pass. And uh, it was only uh, after it was clear that the German situation wasn't going to go Italian that Merkel announced that on reflection, uh, the European Union was what she called eine Schicksalsgemeinschaft, a word that probably <laughs> hasn't been used that often on the podcast, a community of fate. And at the same time, French President Emmanuel Macron jumped in saying that if we didn't do uh, fiscal uh, integration of some kind, then it would all be over uh, for the EU. And, and they got together and they agreed that they would borrow a really large amount of money through um, the issuance of European Union bonds and dish that money out to the people, the regions, not countries, that had been hardest hit by the pandemic. So that's kind of where we are. I thought mm -hmm. I think it wasn't quite a near-death experience, um, or no more really than the previous crises I mentioned, but I think that's what she meant. So where I apologize for not knowing this. I feel like it's one of these things I should know about you. Um, what is your level of optimism? I and mean, we're not going to stay on Europe, Europe, European Union very long because... Because you want um, the audience. It's, yeah, that's right. It's well known that this is <laughs> sort of like that famous New Republic contest of the most boring headline, Worthy Canadian Initiative. One. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, talking about the EU too much European is... European Union death. crisis in history is up there. <laughs> um, but do you, what, are you a skeptic that it's going to work in the long run? Do you think it's a thing? Do you think it's, it's a worthy thing? I, I, I assume you were fairly sympathetic to Brexit, no? Well, I I'm, I'm embarrassed you, not knowing Your this. intern has to do much, much better research, even for last-minute guests, because I had a little <laughs> bit of a history with Brexit, uh, which I shall, uh, I shall summarize briefly. I was against uh, Brexit, uh, despite having a track record as a Eurosceptic going all the way back to the days of Margaret Thatcher. I was very, very much opposed to monetary union and, uh, and, and lined up with the Eurosceptic gang uh, for most of the 90s uh, and into the 2000s. That's but what I thought. I had the deepest reservations about Brexit uh, for, for two reasons, one of which was honourable and the other wasn't. The, the dishonourable one was that uh, David Cameron and George Osborne were personal friends. And I really felt out of a certain loyalty to them that I should take their side in the fight. I didn't really want David Cameron to have to resign because I thought he was a quite good prime minister and George a good chancellor. That was the not very noble reason, or at least it wasn't very intellectually uh, noble. But the other reason was, I think, reasonable, um, which was that it was going to be an extremely long and expensive divorce. 
and it wouldn't mm-hmm. really solve Britain's fundamental problems. Uh, and in that sense, analogies with divorce were appropriate. I think it's proved to be just as long and expensive as I had warned. On the other hand, once we'd lost that referendum four long years ago, I I had been brought up to accept defeat, you know, playing rugby in Scotland after the final whistle goes and you've been <laughs> crushed 60-0. Uh, you shake hands with the winners and off you go. And my right. attitude was we'd been fairly beaten and the Leave campaign had been better run by uh, uh, Dominic Cummings uh, in particular. And ultimately, it, it was a decisive result, especially in, in England. So my attitude by uh, the later part of 2016 was, well, now let's at least make a go of this. It, it, has, it has been, it has been the, the will of the British people. And whether you were for it or against it, you now really have to get on with it. You can't ask for a replay. So that was really my my tangled history with Brexit. I think if you if you ask me what I think the future of the European Union is, for many years I've said that it will it will stagnate from this point on. It can't easily get much more integrated. Though I must say that the steps in the direction of fiscal integration in this crisis were significant, but it's hard for me to believe that it will ever become a truly federal system in the sense of a United States of Europe. Uh, Because ultimately, the project was always really, as the great Alan Millward said, the rescue of the nation state, the the discredited nation states in 1945, really used European integration to to reestablish some kind of legitimacy. Britain was a latecomer to the process, always... I think ambivalent about it, hoped that it would just be economic with no political, with no political aspect, and it became ever clearer, particularly after uh, the Single European Act, which was the last great British contribution. Uh, it became clear that the goal was ultimately federal, and I think the minute that was clear, the minute it was clear that the point of monetary union was to shoehorn the member states into a federal system. I think Britain had to leave at some point. So Mm -hmm. in the end, I think I've come round to Brexit. And I'll add one other thing. I think with Britain gone, it's actually easier for the remaining 27 to move in a federal direction. We were always going to make that difficult. And I think it would have been Britain vetoing the steps that just were taken if Britain had still been at the table. I, I don't think it blows up in the way that many American conservatives fantasize about. I'm always amused by this kind of um, uh, scarcely disguised wish that it would all blow up. Uh, because I don't think that's how things like the European Union die. It's more like the Holy Roman Empire. It'll still exist on paper 20 years from yeah. now. There'll be all these institutions in Brussels, but they just won't have much power. And in that sense, it, it will have a sort of long lingering, stagnant final phase uh, until somebody, rather as Napoleon did, comes along and and, and reveals that it's just a a rotten edifice. Yeah, for it to really blow up dramatically, you would have to expect modern-day Germans and Belgians to show passion publicly, which is asking a lot of them, right? (laughs) That's not how they're wired anymore. Well, I mean, the point about the European Union is it's sort of passion-free and passion in European politics by 1945 had been revealed to be a toxic substance. I was writing about this 
in 2011, at the time that everybody thought Greece was going to leave the monetary union and that that was going to fall apart. And I wrote a piece uh, for the Wall Street Journal, which was rather prophetic. And I said, the monetary union won't fall apart. Greece won't leave the euro, but Britain will leave the European Union. And and so I Mm. kind of, I knew it was coming, but I ended up for as I said, rather personal reasons on the wrong side of that of that particular fight. Ultimately, to me, Europe is interesting because it's it's sort of the opposite of a superpower. It's the opposite of an empire. I made this argument in a book called Colossus back in 2003 that empires project power. United States projects power. China projects power. But, but Europe doesn't really do that. It, Europe is really about taking resources from the richer parts of Europe and distributing them to the the poorer parts of Europe. And in in terms of military capability, it's a non-existent entity, really. Uh, The security of of Western Europe was provided by NATO, not by any European institution in the Cold War. And this is something that Germans have a tendency to forget. Every time you hear a European politician say, thanks to the European Union, we have had X years of peace, you should (laughs) reach for a stiff drink because... It really is a complete misrepresentation of history. That's not what the European Union's for. The European Union is an economic project to integrate the continent as a as a market and then engage in trade policy uh, as an equal in terms of of trade negotiations with uh, the United States or, or China. That's what it does. But in terms of the defense of Europe, it's it's nothing of of any consequence. Yeah, no, it, it, that's always driven me crazy is this zone of peace argument that, that somehow they've t- gotten violence out of the political system while hiding behind basically the protections behind a wall of protections that they didn't contribute their fair share to. All right. So I want to move off of Europe bl- blissfully, um, although I did like Phew. the idea of uh, of Britain staying in the EU and sort of being the Texas of the United States of Europe, just obstreperous and rebellious. It's kind of a nice image. Um, But uh, first of all, how much blowback have you gotten for getting all of these Imperial College (laughs) epidemiological things wrong? I mean, it's really, I would have thought it would have been a much bigger blow to your reputation than it seems to have been. It's only been a (laughs) blow to my reputation amongst illiterate people who can't spell... (laughs) Uh, since Neil Ferguson at Imperial College spells his name N-E-I-L, and I have the much uh, smarter N-I-A-L-L spelling, the Gallic version. Actually, I always used to think my parents had made a mistake calling me N-I-A-L-L because I spent half my life saying, no, it's not Nile, that's a river in Egypt. But in <laughs> fact, in 2020, they came up trumps. And uh, and so it's only really people who can't spell who say, you and your damn paper, you've called the <laughs> lockdowns and cost me my job. Wait till I get my hands on you. And I, I do so have you gotten a lot of that? Twitter announcement saying, you know, notice uh, for the illiterate, <laughs> I am not an epidemiologist at Imperial College. Yeah, it did lead to a certain amount of a certain amount of abuse. But um but really, not not in the not in the big league. If my father had got his way, I would have been called Icarus, and I I used to think, God, I dodged a bullet there. <laughs> Imagine the bullying at school. But actually, he was right. Icarus Ferguson would have been a much better bet, and I wouldn't have had to deal with even the illiterate people confusing me with that Neil Ferguson. It's a 
it's a pretty badass name, but a lot of book reviewers who are hostile towards you would go with metaphors about your ambition. I mean, it would just be too easy for the hacks to attack you in some ways. It would. Um, That would have been the first book. They would have really had to stop doing it by book two. And I think after a while, in Glasgow, there would have been some nickname version anyway. I would never have got got through school being called Icarus. I, I, it would have been Icky. A big yeah. Icky. Hey, wait a minute, Icky. What's <laughs> going on? See, you're on that Jonas podcast again. Why'd they call you Icarus anyway? That's a stupid name. If only they'd called you Neil. That would have been the kind of conversation in Glasgow. So I, I think on balance, I'll stick with Neil spelt the funny way. Um. All right, so uh, I don't know if you saw this today, but 53 countries, I think it's 53, it doesn't really matter, a large number of countries on the UN Human Rights uh, Council or Commission, whatever we're supposed to call it today, uh, voted to support, basically to bo- voted to support China's crackdown on Hong Kong. <laughs> um, and uh, as a f- friend on Twitter said, um, you know, maybe if we just, if we could just get the Chinese to convert en masse to Judaism, uh, people would actually care about its human rights record. <laughs> um, but uh, so this this raises something I brought up a few times on here. I've talked to Congressman Mike Gallagher and a few other people about this. I'm very sympathetic to some, I'm not saying a replacement for the UN, though I have no love for the UN, but a rival a parallel alternative institution that has higher standards than just existence you know, and people call it a concert of democracies or a league of democracies. And this Human Rights Commission vote sort of illustrates the point. Most of the, almost all the countries uh, who voted in favor of China were autocratic nations. Um, what do you think of the idea of somehow sort of, you know, if you had an organization that actually uh, had set a standard that you had to have a certain amount of commitment to human rights, a certain amount of commitment to democracy... Um, it would give legitimacy on the world stage to some of the things that we want to do with foreign policy while at the same time um, not having to go through the UN, which is basically like going, having to get, you know, approval from a bunch of mobsters in a lot of, in a sense. Uh, I know you're much more of a gross materialist about these things, so I'm just kind of curious where you come down on all of this. Well, I think it would be fun to have a kind of League of Democracies, just so that the United States could be expelled from it on November the 4th <laughs> when Donald Trump's re-elected. Um, no, it's obviously a, a reasonable thing to, to suggest because the United Nations and all the various entities under that umbrella has, I think, become uh, a ridiculous uh a ridiculous and and essentially hypocritical organization. And I think that was always bound to happen, but it's it's been made worse by our efforts uh, in the period of engagement, to use the fancy term, to bring the Chinese into these institutions. Now, everybody noticed the funny behavior of the World Health Organization during the Mm -hmm. early phase of the pandemic, and so we don't need to labor that point. But it's actually more striking to me that a Chinese citizen heads up four different uh, uh, UN agencies. The one I, I looked at most recently was the International Civil Aviation Organization. Uh, that's an interesting organization. 
because I was trying to find out in the course of a spat with the pro-Beijing uh, uh, political theorist named Daniel Bell, how many planes had actually flown out of Wuhan after the supposed lockdown of January the 23rd. And mm-hmm. although you can find out how many planes left an airport relatively easily from various satellite tracking websites, it's hard to find out how many passengers were on board the planes. The people who can tell you that are, uh, of course, at the uh, International Civil Aviation Organization. Unfortunately, the person in charge of that organization is a graduate of the University of Wuhan. And oddly <laughs> enough, the data were unavailable this year. Perhaps try again in December was the was the response. And you'll see a similar pattern in other in other agencies that the Chinese directly run now, uh, the, there's a telecoms version of this, which the Chinese are in charge of at the moment. And you'll be surprised, or perhaps not surprised, to hear that they're pushing a reform of the way the internet is run. I wonder what the objective of that Shocking. might be. I just can't, I can't guess. But at any event, we allowed the the Chinese uh, to increase their participation in in everything at the UN, including peacekeeping. And surprise, surprise, um, here we are. I think, mm-hmm. though, that the UN was always going to end up in this situation because of a design feature that in some ways was correct. The design feature was, unlike with the League of Nations, you would give the great powers, brackets, victors of World War II, a dominant veto power on the Security Council. And the UN Security Council is the most important part of the UN in the end. Right. Uh, the problem is that, that Franklin Roosevelt made a slight mistake in insisting that China be one of those permanent members because, of course, he didn't foresee the 1949 revolution and the communist takeover of China. So the Chinese have been the beneficiaries of Chiang Kai-shek's popularity with the United States ever since. Another interesting thing, Jonah, which I noticed just the other day, is what an enthusiast Vladimir Putin has become for the permanent members of the UN Security Council. He's been arguing in a couple of very historically based lectures, almost as if his intern got carried away or was a former history PhD, that the key lesson of the 1930s and 1940s is that power should be wielded by the victors of World War II. And forget about G7 and G20, let's just get together the P5 uh, and figure this out. And, and that that's a very interesting Russian card to play at this point. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I actually think Donald Trump would have accepted that uh, on day two of his presidency, but for the hostility to Russia in Congress. So the UN already for some time actually has been an institution serving the interests of both China and Russia. And it served the interests of the United States too, when it suited us to get international legitimacy for military action going all the way back to the Korean War. Can you replace it with something that's democracies only? It's the sort of thing I remember discussing with John McCain. It was very much mm-hmm. his kind of idea. And it has a... He proposed of, something like this, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he, yeah. he was he was very keen on this as a, as a project. And, and at the same time, I I remember hearing a kind of similar argument from my more ardent Eurosceptic friends in Britain, which was essentially, let's take the five eyes, the Anglosphere, and turn mm-hmm. that into uh, into the sort of new uh, club. And, and I guess my 
My skeptical reaction, I've already hinted at part of it, which is that the Europeans hate the United States so much when it has a Republican president. It stops hating it when there's a Democrat. But when there's a Republican president, the Europeans hate America. So it's very hard to see how this thing would be anything other than a kind of hate fest, at least mm -hmm. as long as Trump is in the White House. And I, I think also that there's a sort of redundancy here, because in practice, I think that the Democratic countries that matter do work together. Five Eyes is the best illustration of this because it's the intelligence sharing club of the uh, English speaking peoples, if I'm allowed to use that phrase and not be cancelled. Perhaps that's it. I'm now Give it about 10 minutes. Yeah. But um, before <laughs> that happens, let me finish the thought. If you make it too obvious, if you make it too public, if you have a building with shiny brass plaque, uh, and a website, I think that's actually going to undermine the ways in which the democracies can work together by attracting the attention of, you know, Vox and Slate and the Daily Beast. And they'll spend their <laughs> whole time trying to show that it's actually a, a front for some cynical capitalist racket. So I think it's better not to formalize these things, actually. I'm, I'm, I'm of the view that we have enough international organizations and ideally we should have fewer. I feel that, I feel mm. that way... Of, about international organizations that woke people feel about statues. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Um, uh, you know, I, as you point out, I mean, part of my indictment of the UN is that, and I'm sure you've encountered more of this than I have, is that there are a lot of people who love the whole parliament of man concept. And so they imbue the UN with moral legitimacy it does not have. And as you point out, the Security Council is really the beating heart and the thing that can call the shots uh, at the UN. And it instantiates as a matter of international law, the concept of might makes right, right? I mean, there's the only reason why China and the Soviet Union are on there is there were nuclear powers post, you know, they're post-World War II victors and all of the rest. And um, that's fine if you're gonna make a realpolitik argument about why the UN needs to exist. <clears throat> but all the people I always end up arguing with want to imbue the UN with this moral legitimacy that derives from the fact that you just have a couple of autocrats on there and they're but they're powerful countries and yeah. there's a there's an inherent tension in there and that's that's one of the things that just I, I think history is a good cure for this. I mean, if you actually just look at the history of the United Nations, essentially in the first half of the Cold War, the U USSR uses its veto, and in the second half, the US uses its veto, and mm -hmm. very little can get done beyond virtue signaling, and that's what the General Assembly is for. And so, ultimately, if you think about what the United Nations has really done that's mattered, uh, Korean War, Gulf War One, that's it. Next. Yeah. Next. Yeah. I mean, right, none of the rest of it is anything other than collective virtue signaling. And I, you know, I'm personally of the view that that we have a surfeit of occasions when international uh, leaders gather for uh, cocktails and photo opportunities or from now on Zoom conversations. And if there's anything that really, really gets me down, it's UN week. I think it's even worse <laughs> than the World Economic Forum and Aspen Security. UN week, when they all gather complete with motorcades in New York City and paralyze the city. And the worst leaders get an opportunity to grandstand. And it, it's just a complete charade.
It it really yeah, I, it really is. It, it makes me get get very John Boltonish, you, you know, UN week. But then I pull myself back from let's just blow the whole thing up, and remind myself that it it has occasionally served uh, some purpose in legitimizing the the rightful acts of the great powers. It was right to intervene after South Korea was invaded, and it was right to intervene after Kuwait was annexed. And it was good to use the UN to legitimize that intervention. So it still has its uses. But I I think the kind of starry-eyed version of the Parliament of Man is um, is just something that doesn't stand up to any serious historical assessment. Yeah, no, the Parliament of Man idea is insane unless you want China and India to have 60% of the seats in the great global parliament. Well, whenever people like Anne-Marie Slaughter at the f- once known as Woodrow Wilson Centre at Princeton, I don't know how that's going to be renamed, but once you get started with Anne-Marie and others on reforming the UN and changing the makeup of the UN Security Council, you realise what a doomed venture it is because there is no... There is no formula that can possibly work. Um, certainly not in the interests of uh, of the United States, and I don't think in the interests actually of Western Europe. And so you're kind of stuck with it. And institutions that are built by the victors in world wars, even if they're kind of oddly skewed by the inclusion of losers, uh, because really... France was a loser of World War II, and, and so was China, in effect. Mm-hmm. Certainly the Guomindang lost in the end. The fact that those countries are there makes it a sort of odd victor's club. But that's what it is. It's a victor's club. And what's yeah. very clear... It's also a nuclear club and all yeah. the rest. But yeah, no, I take your Although point. Although that, yeah. that, that nuclear club, of course, uh, that couldn't be preserved. That, that, mm-hmm. That's one of the interesting things about the Cold War, that... Non-proliferation was quite successful as a regime, the kind of condominium of, of nuclear of nuclear powers, but it ultimately couldn't stop the club uh, admitting one member after another tacitly who shouldn't really mm-hmm. have been there. So I think I think what you're really left with is this sort of subset of the nuclear powers who just happened to be at the the winner's table in 1945. I think the interesting thing is is the way that Putin is trying to re-establish the P5 as more than just a kind of veto-wielding club. I think that that tells me that there are limits to what he can do in a bilateral alliance with China. And indeed, mm-hmm. there are dangers to him of that combination. Right now, the closest alliance geopolitically in the world is between Russia and China. Operating together, using the same tactics, for example, in information warfare. I suspect that if the Chinese make a move on Taiwan at some point later this year or next year, the Russians will simultaneously make a move somewhere else in order to really compromise uh, the US response. But for Putin, it's ultimately dangerous to be the junior partner Xi Jinping. China's taking over Russia's historic backyard. Everything we know about Russian-Chinese relations over the ages tells us that this is a marriage of convenience that won't last. So I think for Putin to try and dust down the P5 and make nice to Macron, by the way, Macron likes this idea too. He's quite receptive to the blandishments uh, of the Kremlin. Uh, Boris is probably uh, too distracted by 
uh, other things to realize the significance of what's being proposed. And as I said, Trump mm-hmm. would probably do it, would have done it ages ago if it weren't for the fact that Congress hates Putin. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting point. I mean, it doesn't surprise me that France likes the idea because they're always looking for institutions to be a counterweight to America that amplify French power. Um, Macron's reinvented himself as de Gaulle. I mean, that's one of the interesting recent subplots in this story that after the Gilets Jaunes revealed the limits of of Macron 1, Macron 2 came along as essentially de Gaulle. And and the things that Macron does are very de Gaulle-like, so beat up on on NATO. Uh, Remember, he called it brain dead. And then Mm -hmm. say that Europe's about to blow up very de Gaulle. And then, you know, make make nice with with Russians. It's it's very much the de Gaulle playbook. So for for France, this makes sense. The subplot in the Europe Brexit story, although France uh, more or less lines up with the other 26 uh, EU states to to hate on Brexit, quietly Macron is pursuing great power diplomacy with, with Britain and Germany leaving the smaller players out of consideration. So so Putin's notion isn't completely isn't completely for the birds. And it, it has mm-hmm. some traction in Paris, a little bit in in London, although the London Moscow thing is pretty toxic at the moment. Um and it would appeal, I think, and it did appeal to Trump. It was part, I think, of of what was possible four years ago or three and a half years ago when Trump was first in the White House. I remember having this long argument back then about what the grand strategy of the Trump administration should be. And I wrote a long piece in the American interest saying exactly this, that you had to take advantage of, uh, of Trump's uh, proclivities uh, and reach out to, to, to the Russians and the Chinese and say, let's make the permanent members of the UN Security Council the people who call the shots now. And mm-hmm. Graham Allison at Harvard s- said, no, it's Thucydides' trap. It, the real story is going to be that the US and China are heading for, for conflict. And he was right. He was right about that. And I was wrong. Um, I would love to talk more about China stuff, but I know you're pressed for time. And it would be malpractice to have a historian on and not actually ask you what you think about the current wave of iconoclasm in the, <laughs> in the US and and I, I I mean iconoclasm. I, mean, I think the similarities with sort of 15th century iconoclasm are actually are on point in a lot of ways. But um, where do you come down? What criteria do you apply for reasonable uh, cancellation versus unreasonable? I, I assume you're not pro mob, but beyond <laughs> that, uh, you know, how, what is your 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 checklist for how you address these these questions. Well, I wrote about this when the the first outbreak of iconoclasm happened, uh, which was a couple of years ago now, when the the woke uh, red guards realised that pulling down statues uh, was the the solution to most of the problems of inequality and 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 racial prejudice that exist in the United States. Uh, I. I sometimes ask myself, am I, am, I, am I just a classical liberal? Am I a conservative? Am I a reactionary? And when I see people pulling down statues, I'm, I'm a reactionary. Me too. Yeah. I, I, I can't really bear it. There are only two circumstances in which it's legitimate to pull down a statue. 
Uh, one is if uh, you conquer a country fair and square, and that's why we were perfectly entitled to pull down statues of Hitler and company. And the other is a proper revolution. Mm. And uh, that was why they were right to pull down the statues of, of Lenin after the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe. But what's happening in the United States today, and it's being imitated uh, regrettably in, in Britain, even in my alma mater, Oxford, is neither a conquest nor, nor revolution. It's a fake revolution. And it's, it's a particularly repulsive kind of fake revolution because the, the gestures uh, of iconoclasm uh, bear no relation, actually, to what the revolutionaries claim to care about. If mm -hmm. they really cared about slavery, they would be uh, trying to focus the world's mind on the real existing slavery that exists in North Africa and the Middle East and elsewhere in parts of South Asia. Uh, but they're not really concerned with slavery. They're actually engaged in uh, an iconoclastic attack on history itself. Mm -hmm. And uh, the fact that they draw no line between Confederate generals and Abraham Lincoln uh, tells you that this is actually a generalized attack on, on history. I, I feel a certain pity for my liberal friends who thought that there would be a line and who thought that it would be all right if the Confederate generals came down and then it would stop and that somehow Abram Lincoln would be, would be spared or indeed George Washington. And now they stand helpless as statues of Lincoln that were erected with contribution subscriptions from former slaves are, are removed from Boston and potentially Washington yeah. too. But I'm not surprised because, and this is why I'm a reactionary, there is no line that an iconoclastic mob is going to, to draw. The, the line that has to be drawn is against vandalism. I accept that if a local, if a municipality decides that a particular statue should be removed and it's a legitimate uh, democratic local government, that it could take that decision. But what is really disgusting to me is to watch the forces of authority stand by as acts of vandalism are perpetrated with impunity. That makes me really angry. Uh, yeah. And I, I guess that's really, that's really based on a historical uh, reading. I, I, I think iconoclasm is best known uh, to historians um, if they've studied the Reformation. But there are actually lots of episodes of iconoclasm historically, and not only in, in Christendom. Uh, think of the Taiping uh, Rebellion or the Cultural Revolution more recently. Uh, it's very rare that iconoclasm coincides with good times. I mean, by and large, mm -hmm. it's a symptom of something deeply uh, dangerous, so usually a kind of fanatical ideology that, that is at work. And you know, I discussed this kind of thing with my brilliant wife, Ayan Hersi Ali, whom you should have on one day. And oh, we're, we're definitely going to. When they finished with the statues, what, what will they do next? And mm -hmm. I think that's the right question to ask. Because in some ways, the pulling over of statues is a prelude. And it's hard to find cases of iconoclasm where there weren't also murders, when there weren't also executions. Um, so, yeah, that, that's why I feel kind of loathing for the people who want to remove Lincoln's statue from Boston and Washington. I really hate those people. The funny thing about, you know, iconoclasts in the, in the 15th century 
was that we really don't know who a lot of them were. I mean, we know who some of like the the, the religious leaders who inspired all of that stuff were, but the actual people who were tearing down the statues and burning the paintings and all that, they're anonymous to history. And one of the great things about anonymity is that um, it's really useful on things like the internet, which is why I want to talk about ExpressVPN. Being stuck at home these days, you probably don't think much about internet privacy on your own home network. Fire up on incognito mode on your browser and no one can see what you're doing, right? Wrong, wrong. Even in incognito mode, your online activity can still be traced. Even if you clear your browser history, your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever seen, including that one. You know what I mean? Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. That's why even when I'm at home, I never go online without using ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN makes sure your ISP, that's internet service provider, can't see what sites you visit. Instead, your internet connection is rerouted through ExpressVPN's secure servers. Each ExpressVPN server has an IP address that's shared among thousands of users. That means everything you do is anonymized and can't be traced back to you. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your data with best-in-class encryption, so your information is always protected. Use the internet with confidence from your computer, tablet, or smartphone. ExpressVPN has you covered on every device. Simply tap one button and you're protected. ExpressVPN is the fastest and most trusted VPN on the market. It's rated number one by CNET, Wired, The Verge, and countless more. So protect your online activity today with the VPN that I trust the most to secure my privacy and yours. Visit my special link at expressvpn.com slash remnant, not dingo, remnant, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash remnant. ExpressVPN.com slash remnant. We thank ExpressVPN for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. The only defense I can muster, which is not really a defense uh, for some of these mobs, is that it's, for some of them, it's clearly just like when the Boston Red Sox wins the World Series and people set fire to cars, you know? I mean, it just it is just some too. of, I'm against that too, but my <laughs> point is, is that some of these people are so stupid and so historically ignorant that it's giving, it's doing them a bit of a favor to call them iconoclasts, right? Because they actually don't have an ideological framework. When they tore down the statue of Hans Christian Wegg, a Norwegian immigrant who uh, chased down slave patrols and then joined the Union Army and gave his life as an abolitionist fighting uh, for the for the freedom of the slaves, there's no intellectual coherent construct that can defend that. That's just a bunch of nihilistic idiots doing stupid things based on ignorance. I, in some ways, I reserve more of my scorn and hatred for the people you mentioned, also, which is the the sort of the good, quote unquote, sort of vital center liberal types, you know, the kind of people who wanted, like Clinton Rossiter, who wanted to take both sides at the Cornell guns on campus thing, who wanted to make allowances for these people, or like Chris Cuomo saying, whoever said that protests need to be peaceable, um, who want to give permission structure for people not to get angry at mobs 
setting fires and tearing down statues. And these people should know better, and but they are so so cowardly in their desire to sort of be on the right side of the mob that they make arguments that they should be ashamed of. But I mean, I think we probably agree on a lot of I that. I think we do agree. I mean, I'd say that this also betrays an ignorance of history. In, in a way, if you know your history of revolutions, you know or should know that in any revolution, it's 15% the crowd in the street, 35% the scared people who just stay home, and 50% the capitulating elites. That's what causes a revolution. And right. what is fascinating to me is to watch American elites in the academy, uh, in the media, in corporate America, capitulating furiously uh, and thinking that, that somehow or other uh, the revolution won't won't come for them. This is the, the classic mistake of early stage revolutions. Now, I think there's a revolutionary situation in the United States, not 1789, not 1917, kind of 1830. Uh, mm. You have all the ingredients of an 1830 or 1848 maybe, revolution. You have an oversupply of educated people who've been given college degrees, but no obvious immediate economic prospects. Uh, th that's always the revolutionary vanguard. And then you've got the, the, the cowardice, which is widespread. I love that paper that was just published showing that when the, the violent uh, and not violent protests in support of Black Lives Matter were happening, social distancing actually uh, went up because the majority of people in the cities affected stayed at home. And that's why there hasn't been a great increase in COVID-19 cases. That reminds <laughs> you that in a revolutionary situation, the majority of people are just scared or risk averse or at home polishing their firearms. But the, the crucial piece in any revolution is the capitulation of the elite. And that mm -hmm. is what we're seeing in the United States today. And I think that that is a cause for much more concern for the liberals than necessarily for conservatives. Because I think if anything became clear during the Me Too phase of the revolution, uh, this revolution eats its own at a fairly early First. stage of the meal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it actually eats its its own at, at the appetizer stage of the revolution. And I don't think that will be any different. Uh, the guillotine outside Jeff Bezos's apartment or house, I should say, uh, in Washington the other day, for me, was a very telling symbol. Um, Jeff, if you'd like to donate to the Hoover Institution, I'm happy <laughs> to give you the bank details. But honestly, I mean, the tech elite with the notable exception of Peter Thiel and maybe now Mark Zuckerberg, tech elite has essentially been on appeasement mode with respect to wokery for years now. Right. And, uh, well, there's the guillotine, Jeff. So, uh, I don't know, you're absolutely right. The, the, um, the eat-your-own dynamic was very much the case in the 1960s. The, the student radicals tended to leave the scholarly wizened old uh, conservative guys alone and went after the the liberals for not being radical enough. And that's who they really hated. Um, but so, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit you with a, a mega question then. So in Joseph Schumpeter's uh, Capitalism, Socialism, Democracy, he basically argues that capitalism is doomed um, because... He sort of borrows an analysis from from Nietzsche that basically the 
the educated class, the new class, the, the intellectuals, the people who deal with words and images, who are the bourgeois offspring of the actual makers and captains of industry, uh, they will become an adversary culture to their own society. And as Nietzsche talks about the priestly class, they they use resentment and they take what were once considered virtues and turn them into vices. So um, in the case of capitalism, you get this massive new class of, of, of elite school educated um, uh from social workers to, to writers and filmmakers and all the rest who are turning everything that was once great about America into vices. And this was his long-term, part of his long-term prophecy of why capitalism was doomed. And Deirdre McCloskey makes this point, lots of people make this point, you referenced it slightly before in your breakdown of the demographics of a revolution. You know, in 1968, the kids who were tearing up the paving stones to throw through windows in Paris were not the sons and daughters of construction workers. They were the sons and daughters of lawyers and bureaucrats and intellectuals. And the same thing I think can be said about a big chunks of 19, 1960s America and also about the steady parade of people we see on TV defending the mobs. So what do you make of all that? Do you think that, that, that the, you know, as Lincoln said, the only way that we could ever come unraveled is basically by a, an internal failure within and not from without? I always agree with Lincoln. <laughs> uh, it was the concluding reflection of my book, Civilization, that we had much more to fear from ourselves than from China. Mm -hmm. I reread Schumpeter recently uh, to write an essay updating Schumpeter for, for Hoover. And it's worth remembering that, that Schumpeter has four reasons why he thinks capitalism is doomed and socialism will succeed. Uh, one of which is, as you describe it, the, the intellectuals essentially being uh, defecting from the system that, that nourishes them. The others are worth running through. There's the proneness of capitalism to creative destruction and, and therefore mm -hmm. to volatility, uh, which, right. which I think is as important a point as any that Schumpeter ever made. Um, it also undermines the moral capital right. of the society. Right? Uh, and, and he also makes uh, the point that capitalism tends towards monopoly, uh, and not, in fact, towards competition. An old Adam Smith point, which Silicon Valley has been doing its best to, to validate over the last 10 or 20 years. And then finally, he makes the observation that politicians will always be tempted by socialism because it's an opportunity to spend other people's money, as Margaret Thatcher famously said. So that's the, the kind of Schumpeter argument. And you might say, well, as prophecies go, uh, it looked very wrong for a while. Certainly in the 1980s, it, it looked very, it looked very wrong. But but I think this issue of the oversupply of of people with graduate deg with degrees and not very good prospects is the thing to to really latch onto here. There's a very nice paper going back some years now, Leonora Boyle's um, uh, paper on the oversupply of educated men in early 19th century Europe. Uh, which is a terrific uh, paper showing that the revolutionaries of 1830 and 1848 were of this class, that there'd been an expansion of higher education, but it turned out that actually the states of the Restoration Era didn't have enough jobs for these people, and these were the revolutionaries. Uh, mm -hmm. It's really the generation of Karl Marx. And uh, if you look at the world today, look back last year at all the protests that there were from Hong Kong all the way to Santiago, uh, actually, it was a dress rehearsal for what we've seen in the U.S. this year. 
And the US is actually just late to the game of the acephalous, leaderless crowd of young people who've been uh, educated, uh, mostly not terribly well, and then disappointed. Uh, because mm-hmm. if you're if you're sort of built up with um, you know three or four years of of undergraduate social science, and then the bad news is broken to you that Uber is your best uh, hope of employment. Uh, not surprisingly, a certain amount of disappointment kicks in, especially if you have a great burden of debt at the end of your uh, degree program. So I think if you think about it in global terms, what we're seeing here is the result of a massive expansion of higher education in nearly every country in the world uh, that dates back to the 1990s. Uh, It was sort of gradual, really, from 1968, but it really, really expanded rapidly uh, from the 90s in Britain as well as in the United States. And some of the numbers are just startling. You realize that in some South American countries and some Asian countries, almost all people go to university and and, and have degrees hmm. now. It's really extraordinary. So I think we're we're living through a very large scale experiment uh, to prove that the Boyle thesis is right. That if you have too many graduates, uh, too many degrees, especially degrees in in social science or, or humanities subjects that are on a close inspection worthless, you're going to have you're going to have trouble in in the streets, especially. Uh, especially if you uh, if you think about the peculiar way in which the millennial and now Generation Z generations are losing out economically. Uh, mm-hmm. th- this is a really important point that I tried to make with Ike Fryman in a piece for The Atlantic last year. Generation wars are now more important than any other social cleavage, and not only in the United States. It's actually a general problem. And we don't really have the we don't have the language for the politics of generational conflict. In Europe, we still tend to think in terms of class. In the US, as becomes clear, we're still obsessed with race. But actually, these are generational conflicts that are playing out yeah. in the streets. And that's why so many of the Black Lives Matter protesters are, in fact, white. Uh, I mean, this doesn't really have anything to do with race or slavery. It is a kind of revolt against history and, I think, implicitly against older generations. So... Um- I got to look at the Boyle paper, uh, but because I'm very interested in the subject. But um, do you, I mean, so part of your your point is that it's just a surplus of humanities majors who don't have the kind of jobs that they were they think they were promised, which I think is a real issue. But but surely the content of what they were taught in the humanities matters too, right? I mean, there is the, you know, the, the, the more you imbibe the Howard Zinn notion of, of America as uh, one of un, unalterable and unremediable sin that never gets smaller in the rearview mirror, the more inclined you are to say, oh, wait a second, I can't find a job and this country sucks, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And the, the amount of the number of these people who have this amazing bullshit vocabulary of um of you know sort of postmodern critical legal studies nonsense about systemic racism and all the rest is really kind of astounding and you wonder you know like couldn't you have learned something more useful for a career than you know daniel bell not daniel bell uh, uh Derek, what was the guy who wrote voices from the bottom of the well the critical legal critical race studies guy anyway but you get my point i mean there's this um, I, I just think that the, 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 it's not just the surplus in terms of a labor surplus. It's the, it's what we filled their heads with too, that matters. I think that's probably right. 
though one has a sense that that there probably are quite a lot of of people in the streets worldwide with with STEM degrees too. Yeah. Uh, but I think what's interesting here is that in the United States, more than in most countries, there has been a drastic shift of of faculty to the left. It's not that this is always the case. I sometimes encounter this argument, oh, universities are all liberal, Harvard was always liberal. But no, 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 no. Actually, if you look at the ratio of, uh, of Democrats to Republicans amongst tenured faculty in all American colleges, um, it's, it's gone up extraordinarily. Mm-hmm. And so I, last time I looked for history, it was something like 17 to 1. And in anthropology, you can't calculate the ratio because there are zero registered Republicans I think we have to look back and say, why did we simply acquiesce, we as conservatives or even as classical liberals, why did we acquiesce in a a, a systematic left-wing takeover of universities, uh, particularly humanities departments, but I think it's happened more broadly. And and, and why are we surprised to find that if our our sort of kids go to these institutions, they come back, work. A number of friends have said to me uh, in the last couple of months, gee, the the thing that really shocked me about the lockdown was that I spent a whole bunch of time with my 20-year-old son stroke daughter and was utterly flabbergasted to find out their views. And there have been some unhappy dinner table conversations during this lockdown period as parents who've paid through the nose uh, two elite institutions have discovered that in return for the checks, they've got a woke 20-year-old. I, I think that that is a, a kind of one of those things where you feel like, why are we surprised? Why, why did we let this happen? Did we somehow think that our children would be immune, that with their finely honed uh, intellects and DNA inherited from us, they would, they would see through uh, the barrage of indoctrination that, that was inevitably going to to come their way. Uh, I, 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 think, I think we'll look back and, and ask not who lost China, that was the question of the early Cold War I, but, but who lost the universities? That'll be the question mm-hmm. of Cold War II. Because in, in Cold War II, which I, I believe we're in, it will be a major problem that young people in no way share our view that China is a, a malign uh, authoritarian regime. Young people are much less hostile to China. The opinion polls show that. And much more, incidentally, receptive to the idea that you need authoritarian structures to do to fix the dreadful problem of climate change. So we, we've lost something more than just an intellectual fight here. We may have lost two generations. Uh, and I look back and ask, did I fight hard enough to try to stop the institutions where I taught over the years from shifting inexorably to the left. And I, I think I did, and sometimes it, it, it cost me. But we were just outnumbered. It was already mm-hmm. over. By, by the time I had, a, had my first job in Cambridge in 1990, the conservatives in the Cambridge faculty felt like you could fit them all into the room I'm in right now. In fact, we mm-hmm. frequently did that at, at Peterhouse to drink copious quantities of claret and drown our sorrows. So even in the 90s, one sensed that to be a conservative professor was an oxymoron. 
and the the fight had already been lost in the previous in the previous generation. So I think that's right. I think the content of what is being taught at universities is a scandal. I've done some work on this. What passes for uh, history, the content uh, of what is taught in history courses, it really beggars belief. There are so many omissions of of key subjects that it can't be any surprise that the iconoclasts don't know that they're engaged in iconoclasm because how many good Reformation courses are still taught uh, at American universities? The, the, the contrast just in the content of history courses uh, between now and a generation ago is, is, is truly depressing. And uh, I, I gave a lecture on this subject for Actor uh, a few years ago. I've done some more work on it since that I haven't published. But you realize when you start going through the course books just mm-hmm. how profound the degeneration has been. And I'm afraid university leaders, deans and presidents have simply have simply turned a blind eye to this dreadful degeneration. Yeah, a few years ago, I went through the course catalog of, I think it was Yale, and um, the number of courses that that dealt with race, gender, sexual orientation... Um, and then also the number of institutions on campus for various identity politics groups. It was just, it goes on and on and on and on and on. And yet the students were constantly talking about how they don't feel heard. They don't feel listened to. They don't have safe spaces. It's like, well, what about the gay Hispanic students association? Isn't that a safe space for you? You know, there is this weird notion of, it's almost an autoimmune response where when you have an autoimmune problem, your antibodies attack healthy organs you have this just aggressive attack on institutions that have already basically given over to the students exactly what they claim they're being denied. Um, And this uh, is happening in corporations now. So what played out in campuses over the last 20 years has now found its way into, into corporations, into major newspapers. And you see how this, how this can, how this continues. And I, I find myself asking, well, what what do we do? And the only actually credible answer is we have to found some new institutions because Mm -hmm. there's no winning back those ones. And one of the things that this country used to be good at was founding new institutions. The the plutocrats of the late 19th century and early 20th century created some great institutions, not least Chicago and Stanford. And uh, we just don't do that anymore. The plutocrats of our time just give yet more money to Yale and Harvard as if they didn't have enough. And then, despite having done any amount of due diligence on Wall Street, they don't. They do no due diligence in their philanthropy. They they write blank checks, and uh, and then are shocked shocked when the money goes to fa- to, to fund woke woke studies and um, anti capitalism uh, programs. So yeah, I think I think this is another example of the failure of the elite. If you if you are so supine as just to donate to these existing institutions and lack the creativity to create new ones, don't don't be surprised at the outcome. So I think we do need some new institutions. And I think it's a very urgent need uh, because there's no future, uh, there's no hope really, I think, of reforming the, the existing educational establishment. And and that that's a big problem because if we don't hurry up and create some new institutions, Jonah, you and I are going to go extinct. People like us, will just, <laughs> we would just won't exist. Uh, well, there's a reason this podcast is called The Remnant. Off early. 
<laughs> There's a reason this podcast is called a remnant in the first place. <laughs> um, What's smaller anyway. than a remnant? <laughs> um, residue. Uh, residue. The residue. Maybe that'll we'll be my next podcast. It to the residue, and then <laughs> the vis- vest- then the vestige. That will be the final <laughs> series. Um, or maybe, or you know, the 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 memory where it doesn't actually exist anymore, but some people remember it. The problem is there will be no memory. It'd be like <laughs> Jonah who. Neil, yeah. who? I don't see any <laughs> books by those guys in, in the library. Um, just to put a little perspective, uh, the this idea of the universities being these incubators for this kind of stuff, uh, Woodrow Wilson, who I am a great and avid hater of, he when he was the president of Princeton, said that the chief job of uh, a, an educator is to make, particularly at Princeton, is to make students as different from their fathers as conceivably possible. And uh, that was also a sort of a great awakening kind of attitude that we've got again now, except yeah. at least that had Christianity to guide it a little bit. Anyway, Neil, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. All right, so uh, Neil Ferguson has, has, has left the building, as it were, and um, there were some, I will, I will be honest, there were some things I kind of disagreed with him about, um, but I think people... His 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 voice is so mellifluous that uh, I just figured uh, people wanted to hear from him more than me, and I have plenty of opportunities to sort of do this kind of stuff. But um, not, I have to go back and look. I, I I think his characterization of Schumpeter saying that capitalism tends towards monopoly is right, but it misses another point that Schumpeter makes and that Adam Smith made, which is that monopolies don't last unless governments um, legitimize them. Right. I mean, this is a point that Adam Smith makes in um, Wealth of Nations where he says, you know, and I've said this a thousand times on this podcast, you know, seldom will two people of the same trade show up at a pub or an inn or whatever where they don't start conspiring against the public good. And what Smith meant by this was that if you have, you know, it is natural for factions, as the founders would call them, members of the same business or people who share the same interest to try and figure out ways in which they can bid up prices, collude with each other to uh, keep uh, competition out, to guaranteed profits, all of that kind of thing. That's how you got trusts. That's how you get cartels. That's how you got all sorts of that kind of thing. And part of Schumpeter's point and part of Smith's point, uh, which Smith makes on the same page as that quote, which I butchered, is that uh, none of that will work unless the state gives sanction to it. Right, unless the state says you can have that monopoly. Otherwise, what you get, this is the part of creative destruction, is you get entrepreneurs, startups, innovators who figure out ways to be more nimble, to provide services better um, or faster than the monopoly. And so monopolies, in fact, are doomed over time so long as the government gets out of the way. My hunch is, since Neil's smarter than I am and read it more recently, that he was getting at that point by talking about how politicians like socialism because it's a way to spend other people's money and lock in um, vested interests. But I was going to get in an argument about that, but I didn't think a lot of people were clamoring for a, a deep in the weeds debate about what Schumpeter meant by all that. Um, I'm also more skeptical of this idea about building new institutions. Um, I agree. It's very, 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 add a few more varies in there, difficult to reform places like Yale and Harvard and all of that. But at the end of the day, um, there is a power and a culture that old institutions have that new institutions do not. And 
Um, for most people who don't care, and as, as Neil was saying, um, a lot of people are shocked to find out that they send their kids to some Ivy League school and they come back little Jacobins. And I'm, I, I know that that happens. Um, but at the same time, most people who want to, most parents who want to send their kids to a Harvard or Yale or whatever, um, it has less to do with the actual education and more to do with the credentialing, the legitimizing, the social status that comes with that kind of degree. And um, so long as Harvard and Yale and those places have those kinds of brand names, creating competing institutions is going to be a, is not going to solve it because the average rich orthodontist in you know Westchester uh, is going to be more interested in being able to brag that they sent their kid to Yale than being able to brag that they sent their kid to some, you know, some new intellectually rigorous school that nobody's ever heard of. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's really important for conservatives to claw back at these institutions from within rather than just simply give them over. Um, if you, part of the problem I see with, with, with this sort of new institution argument, which I've been writing about for years, is that you end up creating the equivalent of parlor, you know, this replacement for Twitter thing that all these right-wingers went scurrying to in this great show of defiance. And they went scurrying there, and then no one pays attention to what they say over there because no one else is going there. And um, it's it's a form of ghettoization. So anyway, I would disagree with them about that too. But other than that, I thought it was great. I think I probably made a mistake starting with talk about the EU because even I started cutting myself. Um, but beyond that, uh, it's always great to have him on. And um, I'm going to have, we're planning on having his lovely bride on some point in the near future. I've got her book. And um, thanks again to Neil for pitch hitting at the last minute. Um, we really are grateful. So with that, um, please sign up at the dispatch if you can. We've got um, an exciting, this will come out afterwards, but uh, I am I am now engaging in, in, in predicting the future. We had a great episode of Dispatch Live last night, um, and uh, it, went, it was hilarious. David French was wrong about so much, um, and I was so shocked by how ignorant Steve Hayes was about uh, so many things in popular culture. And, um, and I thought, I thought, I thought Sarah gave me a little too much attitude at times. Um, but you know, that's all part of this sort of witty badinage that we have amongst friends. So if you tuned into last night's or Thursday night's episode of Dispatch Live, you know what I'm talking about, even though I don't. Um, and with that, uh, thanks again to everybody. And I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? 
they're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino's home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.